Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads that make up the Delmarva Peninsula. Delmarva is a region in the Mid-Atlantic that includes the whole state of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the northeast of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. If you're a returning listener, you may have noticed that I changed the description for the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel and its location in relation to Delmarva to say that it is northeast of Virginia. One of the reasons I wanted to make that distinction was while reading some articles over the past week or so, I came across a couple that seemed to have gotten the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel confused. That, or to save space, they just left part of the description out. However, there is a huge difference in both location and the fact that the Bay Bridge Tunnel goes both over the water and under it to allow for the shipping lanes to remain remain open. I came across that as I unfortunately read about a man who was killed when his tractor trailer went off the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. However, in at least one article I saw in the title that it just said Chesapeake Bay Bridge. I know my husband had also read another article that said the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and later on he corrected it saying, you know, after pictures and other articles, he knew it was actually the tunnel. I don't know if those descriptions are intentionally being mixed up or if just the tunnel span is more famous than the Chesapeake Bay Bridge near um, Baltimore that connects the east and west coasts of Maryland. Unfortunately, though, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel over recent years, according to Trucker.com, has experienced at least six deaths. So I have mentioned the tunnel before. Um, I've been through it a few times. Fortunately, I'm um, I'm not too scared to drive across bridges. However, I will say it's an experience going from a bridge to underneath the water. But, and getting back to the man who did lose his life recently, Christopher Scott, he is one of the number that has died while crossing over the bridge portion of the tunnel. And while today's episode will not be about that, I did want to just express my condolences to the families. And I know that words often don't always convey what we're actually feeling or the sincerity behind those words. But I do hope all of the families and loved ones that have been impacted by these tragedies that have occurred on the bridge tunnel will be able to eventually find closure. That word in itself can sometimes ring hollow as I don't think anyone can ever truly recover from a tragedy like that, but hopefully as time goes on, they'll be able to remember more about the good memories that they spent with their loved ones and not necessarily always think about the tragic and premature deaths that their loved ones suffered. Now, in today's story, which actually was not the story I intended to do, and it's not as though I was changing topics. It's just I found that there would be 
quite the deep rabbit hole to go down. So far, too, I actually just kept finding cases that were, though not directly related to each other, did carry a theme, which was where they actually happened, even though the actual incidents happened at different times and in one case, many years apart. So I went from having an episode that would probably be a little shorter than many of the episodes that I do. And then it proceeded to get longer than that. But then after that as well, there were just new layers that I kept coming upon and peeling back. So I decided to extend it into two episodes with kind of an introduction in this episode, along with one of the incidents I'm going to be discussing. And then in a following episode, I will go over the other two incidents, as well as some of the findings and just some things that we might be able to learn about to try to prevent any of these tragedies from happening again, which is the major purpose of doing, you know, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube video, any of those, the purpose is to try to learn. And if we don't learn from the mistakes of the past, then it's really hard to move forward. Then there was kind of another wrench thrown into the works when a family member who I, you know, he did have surgery at a hospital near where we both live. And he eventually had to be moved to the hospital that I will be discussing today. And I felt kind of bad too, because, you know, sometimes I'll discuss the topics with some family members. And the week before, I had actually discussed the topic with his wife. So, you know, it, it was kind of an uncanny timing. But as I go into more of a description of you know, the area in which I live, because it will be taking place in the county that I live, that there are some factors that are kind of unique to some more rural areas. And that is specific to the county that I live in. And that also then impacted the accessibility of care that many people, you know, have difficulties within the area. There's not as many options. And it's, you know, for some of those same reasons that possibly the events that we'll be discussing um, today occurred. Now, like I mentioned, this will be taking place at least partially in a hospital. There was another facility involved as well in the case I will be covering today, but there is the one hospital that has the connection with the other two um, cases that I will be discussing. So there is that continuity between um, the same health care facility. What I also do want to say is that healthcare professionals do so much for their patients They work incredibly long hours, and especially over the last few years, we've seen healthcare workers go above and beyond. They've worked, you know, like I said, extended hours. They've put themselves at risk to take care of the patients, to try to stay in touch with loved ones of their patients. And 
the stories that I will be discussing are more of the anomaly, not the norm. I can, you know, even say with the family member's wife um, that is over there right now, you know, the nurses, the doctors have kept her up to date. Um, you know, she's constantly in touch with those who are taking care of her husband. So, you know, it's she was very impressed by the facility. Um, you know, we as a family have been over there before previously. Um, my sister that I mentioned in the past did pass away at that facility, but being in there um, when she, you know, was you know, being cared for, the staff went above and beyond as well because we're a very large family and they understood that we all wanted to spend time with her and they made sure that, you know, every one of us had a chance to spend all the time that we needed with her and they did everything that they could to help her and to save her. Even with one doctor, he really looked like he was going to cry. So I'm just saying all of this because I don't want this to look like it's a slam against anybody in the healthcare profession. But these cases did take place, and I think it's important to raise awareness so that we can kind of be on the lookout for dangers that may be out there if we're ever you know, faced with staying in the hospital or other type of healthcare facility. Now, when we get to the end of today's episode, there's one more thing that will be added on that just kind of adds another layer to the specific incident that we'll be talking about today. And it was actually that which made me sit back and say, you know what, I think, you know, this is something that's best kind of split up over different episodes. And it was actually quite surprising, but that's actually the last piece of information that I found. And that was just very interesting in the way that it came up um, when looking for further information on the victim herself. As always, the um, cases, the incidents that I cover will sometimes discuss topics that are very difficult to hear about. Also included in that is the fact that the cases themselves, the details um, within those cases can make it even harder. And in the descriptions that I read, I could almost picture Julie Bailey. And that's what made the, the description and reading on so much more difficult. As just another disclaimer as well, you know, I will be talking about a very large company. Um, at times, they have been known as BB Healthcare or BB Medical Center. Um, the Medical Center, even though it's not distinctly said in any of the articles or information that I read, I know that there are different campuses of BB. So I'm I'm thinking BB Medical Center is the largest of those, but they have grown a lot over the years. And, you know, I've seen that growth happen. The information that I obtained for today's episode is publicly available information. The information came from online articles, court documents, as well as information from archived newspapers. I believe the information is complete and factual based on the documents that I read. 
I mean no ill intent towards any of the staff or medical professionals that were involved in Julie Bailey's care. However, again, I think it's important to look at some of the issues that have arisen and discuss that because at many points in time, either ourselves individually or a loved one has had to use a medical facility, whether it be a hospital or a phlebotomy lab, just a number of different types of healthcare facilities. And just one last thing before I start to set the scene a little bit more, if anybody could maybe leave a like or subscribe to the podcast, um, depending on how you're listening to the podcast, you may or may not be able to do so. But if you could share the podcast, any feedback or engagement with the podcast could help the channel grow. And we are edging ever closer to the 5,000 listens or downloads. So I'm getting excited about that. If you would like to support the podcast financially, and that's to help cover any upgrades or improvements, as well as mostly for um, the podcast hosting platform, as well as subscription services that I will sometimes use to gather the information. There are links in the description for Buy Me a Coffee or PayPal. There will also be the links to the sources that were used in today's episode. So with all of that being said, let's take a look at some events from 2002 in Lewis, Delaware. That actually went into 2003 as well. And these events will forever impact a family. Now, Lewis is a small town with a lot of history. And for those who do want to search for the town, it is spelled L-E-W-E-S. Now, sometimes I've had people question the pronunciation. Um, I did have someone that I went to college with who would visit the area when he was younger with his family. And he would always tell me that he wasn't going to call it Lewis. It's Lou's. And so he would just kind of joke back and forth with me on that. But I can see that, you know, is a pretty valid observation there as a lot of people and myself included, if I didn't grow up around here, would probably pronounce it as such. Now, Lewis is right next to Rehoboth Beach itself and is home to the Cape May Lewis Ferry. Now, the ferry itself brings up a lot of good memories for me. When I was very, very small, my aunt and great-grandmother would go across the ferry at least once a summer. And that was such a big deal for me. And it was an exciting time. I would love to go on the ferry. And the best part is sometimes we would actually see dolphins. And that was the thing we looked out for. I remember sitting on a bench, looking out into the ocean, and just trying to see if there was a ripple in the water, you know, anything that might indicate a dolphin might be coming up. And I was, you know, like I said, very small, like five, six, seven years old. And it was just very exciting, but it did build memories that, you know, I wouldn't have with my great grandmother. It was kind of her treat. And I look back to those days of innocence and joy and just being able to spend time with people I loved. And, you know, what I thought was like 
a cruise because, you know, we're on this boat and it was, you know, at the time, the biggest boat I'd ever seen. So it just really created those memories that I cherish, cherish till today. And while there is really a ton of history that I'd love to go over about the town itself, um, you know, partially because visiting the Swanendale Museum, which is translated to Swan Valley, was pretty much a staple of elementary school field trips around here. So at least for me, it made me interested in history too. And I still love learning about history. Getting back to BB Hospital itself and the locations and some factors that may go into deciding where to go for treatment in the area. Well, that's kind of important as far as setting the scene. Um, and it's something that, depending on where you live, you may not have ever you know, really thought about it. Um, to me, growing up, I knew that the hospitals were distanced, you know, pretty far apart. And I just never really thought about it, you know, for one thing, as, you know, a kid or a teenager, even young adult, it's not always the first thing that you think of. But in experiences living further north in the state, as well as in New York while going to college, it's now pretty, you know, clear to me that there are fewer hospitals based on distance than I think I actually would feel comfortable with. And that's based solely on the distance. However, when looking at the population numbers, having additional hospitals would not always be so cost effective. And while cost should never be an issue in regards to saving a human life, we all have to admit that it does play a role in receiving treatment. So what I did is I took a look at Sussex County, and it's a, just under 1,200 square miles, 1,196. We have three hospitals, which one actually serves both Sussex and Kent County, and then there is an emergency medical center, which when it first opened, was only open in the summer, and that is because of the beach and tourist season, both having more people in town, as well as the beach is, you know, sometimes a dangerous place, you know, stepping on a shell or something that can cut your foot. So you might have guessed that happened to me at some point. And yeah, they can be really sharp um, or even worse, broken glass, as well as sunburns or any other medical event that can come up. And those are more of the minor inconveniences that may arise, but then it's also there to treat the more serious cases such as car accidents, severe falls, and then sudden medical events. So that is a very important um, addition, in my opinion, as in 2014, it did open all year round and is open 24-7. So while it doesn't serve exactly as a hospital in that you know, there's no beds, there's no um you know, surgical locations, and what would happen is if the person did need to be admitted or have further tests, they would then be taken to BB or another hospital that would have the facilities that the patient needed. I then wanted to take a look at a county that I thought was pretty populous. I initially was going to look at Manhattan, New York City, but I know that's one of the 
extremely densely populated areas. So just, I thought about county names and, you know, thought that many people would be familiar with and thought about Orange County, California. Now, they are more than 250 square miles smaller than Sussex County, yet their population is 300 or over 3 million, which makes it about 12 times the population of Sussex County. And I'm just kind of using round numbers here to give the example, but according to OCHealth.gov, there are 24 hospital locations or emergency centers in Orange County, California. So looking at the population and the numbers, yes, there needs to most definitely be more hospitals in Orange County, California. But not only do they have more hospitals, as they're also so populous, a lot of times they can attract more doctors, um, doctors with more experience, more specialties, especially. Um, whereas I will, you know, say that probably within the past two years, at least four of my doctors in different specialties, and actually two from the same office because I switched from one, you know, to another when. The first one left, well, then the second one left as well. Um, so I've lost four specialists over the past couple of years. And you know, some of the feedback that you know they said in the letters that they sent out to their patients, it was more for opportunity, you know, that you know, they wanted a change. And unfortunately, the hospitals and medical facilities in the area just didn't offer some of the advancement that other areas of the medical field um, may offer. I am fortunate in that I do live in a town with one of the hospitals. And, you know, if I don't catch any red lights, it would be maybe five minutes to the hospital from my house. But if anything were to ever happen where I'd have to detour um, to even get to the same hospital, just because... You know, there's not really a lot of side streets to get around, depending on how you might have to detour, but it could add you know, 10 minutes to the drive, um, you know, depending on like if there's road work, an accident, anything like that. Um, it becomes even more impactful when there are patients who kind of are in the middle between these hospitals, that if there's a life-threatening emergency, they have to wait First, to have emergency responders come out, as also until recently, um, over the past year or two, there were very limited paramedic resources and they would travel across the whole county, which means you could have an ambulance 40 minutes away before it could get to someone. So it covered the whole county, but thankfully, um, there's movement and work to try to get, um, you know, more of those emergency services in the area to make sure all of you know the residents, all of the visitors are taken care of. So how may that impact the care that somebody can receive? First, if looking at you know an emergency, then the facilities themselves may not have the equipment. Um, the doctors who specialize in a certain area may not have any local offices or practice at the hospital. This also impacts you know, your regular doctor's visits as if you do have certain specialists that you have to see on a regular basis, 
You then may have to travel long distances. Um, with the advent of tele telemedicine, I know that's been a great help to me as um, one of my sons has had multiple appointments to um, a hospital in Newcastle County, and they have started the, you know, have more regular visits through a video conference or, you know, video call so that someone's not having to drive two hours each way for maybe a half an hour appointment. Also, there tends to be a concentration of doctors in a town where there is a hospital, so that also will increase travel time. And these things can influence a patient and where they go for treatment. And I have to wonder if Julie's family really thought about that or when Julie told her family on Christmas Day in 2002 that she was experiencing some stomach issues. Well, I have to wonder if they had any qualms or thoughts about taking her to BB. Now, something to know about Julie is while still only 60 years old, she was already battling advanced Alzheimer's disease. It was estimated that she had the mind of approximately a two-year-old. She was married to Anthony or Tony Bailey, and she had three children from a previous marriage. Now, if you do happen to read anything regarding the case, um, some of the court documents even, one had the age of 62, while one had the age of 60. However, the obituary did have 60, and so that's what um, I feel is the correct age. But either way, she was young to be going through an advanced Alzheimer's case. So looking at the definition of early onset Alzheimer's, she was under 65 years old. So she did meet that um, you know, criteria for early onset Alzheimer's. And that had to be so devastating at such a young age to realize that that was going to be happening. And then for her husband and her two sons to see that transition. If anybody has had someone close to them that had Alzheimer's, it can be very painful to watch the someone that you love, someone that may have been vibrant and outgoing throughout their whole lives, for them to lose part of themselves. I mentioned my great-grandmother earlier and the memories that going across the ferry and what they meant to me. Now, both she and her son, who was my great-uncle, did have Alzheimer's. Um, and my mom's side of the family was pretty small. So, you know, I did spend a lot of time with them when I was younger and growing up. So that makes those memories even more precious. What was confusing to me, though, as a child is I didn't understand why, you know, maybe my great grandmother didn't remember something I had just told her the last time I saw her or the same thing with my great uncle. And it's hard to understand that. As an adult now, emotionally, I find it a little bit harder because looking back, it almost feels like I lost them twice. First, as they lost the memories that we had shared. And then secondly, when they did pass on. I don't know how you know, other people who may have experienced loved ones with Alzheimer's look at that. But, you know, looking at it in two different age groups as being a child when that happened and now being adult an adult, that's, that's really what it makes me think about. Julie had been a nurse for over 20 years. 
So she would definitely fit into the category of doing everything that she could to try to help her patients, such as the medical workers that I was speaking about earlier. She was also into different types of artistic mediums. Um, She liked to paint and did so in pastels, oils, and watercolors. And she also liked to sing and sail. So she definitely sounds like someone who tried to live her life to the fullest and spend her time making those precious memories. The fact that her initial visit to the hospital happened on Christmas Day makes it all the more sad if that is a holiday that her family celebrates. If so, hopefully her grandchildren will not equate that day with this event going forward. So by now you're probably very, very curious to know what happened. Julie was treated for about three days at BB, and on December 28th, she was sent from there to a convalescent center, and that's Lewis Convalescent Center. And it's at Lewis Convalescent Center where the main incident um, that kind of sets forth the chain occurred. And it does make me wonder if there had been, you know, more long-term skilled health facilities um, or rehabilitation centers, if there had been more around, if there could have been more choices for someone to take a look at which facility best suited Julie's needs as each patient is unique. So having different types of facilities or specialties would be advantageous to make sure that each person got their targeted health care. I also wonder if Tony Bailey or any of Julie's sons had seen the report that Delaware Health and Social Services issued on December 26th, if they may have thought about even looking further out into other facilities for Julie to stay in. The report that was released on the 26th was regarding a Mr. Edgar Anderson. Now, Edgar Anderson was not a patient at Lewis Convalescent Center, but he was a patient at Harbor Healthcare and Rehabilitation Center, also in Lewis. Mr. Anderson was recuperating from pneumonia, and there was not really any expectation that he would not recuperate, but he just needed some help while he did go through the recovery process. And so he would need sometimes help getting around. And on the night of October 11th, 2002, one of the healthcare workers within the facility, again, that one is Harbor Healthcare and Rehabilitation, went in to check on Mr. Anderson, and she made a horrifying discovery when she found that he had somehow become entangled in the seat belt of his wheelchair. The belt itself had been wrapped around his neck, and he was also found in a position that at least made me think that he was struggling to free himself as anybody would. According to DHSS, the Department of Health and Social Services, who conducted the investigation, and we'll hear more about their investigations in the next episode, that his, quote, arms were above his head with his shirt and t-shirt bunched up around his neck, end quote. As in many of my previous searches, I had been searching specifically for BB as I was looking more for one of the cases that we'll go over in the next episode. So I actually did not find Mr. Anderson's case until later on. 
while I was searching for more information about Julie. Um, her case was mentioned in a newspaper article because it was discussing the um, the fact that there were, and you'll hear about the next one, two incidents at two different healthcare facilities in only a four-month period. And just as a little side note about um, Harbor Healthcare, um, the FBI was actually investigating that facility for fraud. So there's just, like I said, layers upon layers here. So let me know if any of you would like me to cover Mr. Anderson's case in depth a little bit more, as well as the facility itself. And it's really uncovering, you know, these pieces of information that cause me the most anger and frustration. Looking at this, I thought, how, when it's a relatively small town, there's two facilities there and tragic accidents happened twice in such a short period of time. You know, Lewis Convalescent Center would have most likely heard about Mr. Anderson's case. And so it's just unbelievable that you know, something would occur that soon after Mr. Anderson's death. And so as Mr. Anderson's daughter was preparing to say goodbye to her father, Julie Bailey was entering Lewis Convalescent Center. And within moments, things happened that would make the next 24 days of her and her family's lives a living nightmare. She arrived at the facility at around 11 a.m. Very soon afterwards, she went missing. And I don't mean they found her in the hallway quickly, but no. The staff took four to five hours to find her. They began to look throughout the expanse of the grounds of the Lewis Convalescent Center, or LCC. And finally, at some point during the search, the door to a walk-in freezer was opened. And given what we know, you probably already know where this is going. But there are details that have really imprinted themselves in my mind. This might be because I have unanswered questions about the exact series of the events that immediately followed her discovery. And if I actually had those answers, though, I don't know if they would make an already horrific incident and tragedy even worse, if there's even a possibility of it getting any worse. But when Julie was found, she was on the floor. Not knowing how to free herself, she had most likely been in there for most, if not all, of the time that she had been missing. While in the freezer, she subsequently did urinate on herself. Then the urine froze with Julie on top of it. She was described almost of more of like a kneeling sitting position. And this is where some of my biggest questions come in, um, at least about when she was found. It took three employees to get her up is how it was described, which I don't know. What would have been worse? I'm wondering, did they try to thaw some of the ice? Because if she was just pulled up directly, that could, you know, pull at the skin, cause, you know, more injury, not to mention be more painful. But then again, depending on how it was attempted to be melted, that could be painful too. I'm also thinking, though, if you find someone in a freezer, 
your first instinct would be to get them out as quickly as possible and try to get them warmed. Julie was taken back to BB and she had frostbite to her fingers and toes and her face. She was transferred back to BB where staff did everything that they could to treat the frostbite, but some of their other actions were questionable. However, after 24 days since being locked in the freezer, Julie died on January 21st, 2003. I think most, if not all of us, have heard people say that America tends to be a litigious society. And in some situations, I agree. However, in this case, with what Julie had to go through in the last 24 days of her life and what her family had to endure seeing her in such pain, they sued both BB and Lewis Convalescent Center. Now, you might be thinking, where does BB really fall into this as, you know, they're not the ones who, you know, controlled the grounds where she went missing. They weren't in charge of the staff that didn't contact law enforcement or anyone to try to help on the search. Well, this is where they come in. It was found while reviewing information in her medical records after her death that there were at least five times when Julie's frostbite was treated and she was not given any pain medication. When I read that, something popped into my mind. And I don't know, maybe this become, or because I've become so cynical, um, just, you know, looking at, you know, different cases throughout, um, the last couple of years. But when I read that, I just automatically thought, why would someone do that? Did they do it because possibly they didn't think she would complain because of her condition? Otherwise, why would they not give Julie pain medication prior to a treatment that they knew would be very painful? It was kind of like a hydrotherapy treatment, and it was known to be painful. And so in my mind, I was kind of equating it with, um, you know, we don't get much snow here, but when we do, and then say I have to scrape snow or ice off my car, I don't always have a pair of gloves with me. And, you know, my fingers get really, really cold. And if I put them in front of the heater in my car, or if, you know, if I'm at home or get home and I put them underwater, they burn. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And for those few moments, it's painful. But then Julie had frostbite, what she had compared to the few moments that someone might spend, you know, scraping off the car or maybe shoveling some snow, which I know in some locations, that's not just a few minutes that can be you know, quite intensive. Um, but she spent four hours in a freezer. She had injuries from the regular frostbite, but I'm sure she would have had injuries as well to you know, some parts of her legs where she was frozen to the floor. And the pain medication would have made the treatments just a little bit more palatable, but she wasn't given that at least five times. Now, my thoughts as to why she wasn't given um, the, the pain medication was just my opinion. So I want to make that clear. It was not brought up as that being fact in any of the documents or anything, but that just popped into my head. And having that thought in my head just made me 
more upset about what she and her family had to go through, especially as the response, and especially during the lawsuit. Well, I'm just going to say that neither facility really came off to me as being you know, generally, genuinely concerned about Julie and what she experienced and what her family went through as well. Sometimes the reactions of those who can be found at fault tell you more about them than the actual incident. I was discussing money earlier because, you know, about how many hospitals that are in the area, because whether we like it or not, money is always a factor. While punitive damages were settled before the jury, the jury could decide on that aspect of their case. The trial was supposed to have taken place between March 9th through March 16th, and this was in 2005, so a couple of years later, but they did settle about the punitive damages on March 15th. Because of this, though, BB was concerned that the jury, and I should say LCC as well, were worried that the jury would, when trying to decide the compensatory damages amount, that they would be looking as well at punishing both facilities for contributing to Julie's pain and death and trying to look at it, you know, stepping back from it. I can see why they would be concerned about that. I mean, really, um, hearing this case, that's understandable. I, I figure myself, if I had been on the jury and I heard that, I would have a difficult time as well separating that. I'm not going to deny that. However, everybody involved in the case, the attorneys for both um, institutions, the Bailey's lawyer, the judge, they did meet to make sure that the jury instructions were clear because they had, you know, lots of things to go over in the fact that, you know, they'd been in court for a number of days to that point, And then all of a sudden they're going towards the settlement. Now, you may be wondering what exactly is the difference between the two types of damages. Punitive damage punishes, and that's where the term punitive does come from. So basically, it's looking at the establishment or establishments that may have caused an injury and punishing them for the acts or the negligence that caused that injury or even in this case, death. Compensatory damages are damages paid for the trauma or the pain to the victim. In this case, as the victim had actually already passed away, then her estate or, or closest family members can then sue as well to be compensated for the pain, the loss, and the trauma that they had gone through. So as BB and LCC did appeal the damages, and this was for the compensatory damages as the family and the estate received a total of a $13 million judgment. BB and LCC felt that um, in this case, the punitive damages and the compensatory damages trial, they were originally all together but then the punitive part of the case was settled and they felt that the jury um, would be influenced still by what Mrs. Bailey had gone through and therefore award compensatory damages more as punitive damages. 
So just to shorten it and try to put it in the words that I took it to mean is they thought that by hearing exactly all of the details um, when the trial was joined as you know both punitive and compensatory damages, that the jury would be acting out of emotion or anger over what had occurred. And honestly, that's pretty valid, I think, because, you know, if I had been on the jury and I heard some of those things, I, I admit I would have trouble separating emotion versus you know, requirements on um, what we had to follow as guidelines to award compensatory damages. The appeal also said that the, or that the judge gave improper directions to the jury, um, especially in terms of how it was separated between the punitive and compensatory damages. But there were times when BB or LCC had not raised objections at the time when they could have, as well as there had been discussion about the directions to be given to the jury um, when the punitive damages part of the suit had been settled. I also admit that I had mixed feelings about what BB's part in the suit should have been, such as should they have been held as responsible for the emotional distress and trauma that her family and she had gone through since it was while at LCC that she became lost and trapped in the freezer. But going back to BB, she was not given, you know, medicine that would help at least minimize the pain that she went through as she had to go through the therapy to try to treat the frostbite. In testimony given by Tony Bailey, Julie's husband, there were times he said that he couldn't get off the couch, that he didn't want to work anymore. Um, he made an allusion to working with glass. So it sounded like he was, you know, a glass blower and he hadn't felt really compelled to do any of that since Julie's death. He also felt like he had let her down, which is just heartbreaking. I mean, he did what he, you know, thought he needed to do, of course. He took her to the hospital when she made complaints about stomach issues. When the hospital, you know, when they proposed that she should go into um, a more of a long-term care facility to recover, he agreed, and no one would have ever thought that something like this could happen. Julie's son, Chris, he also discussed some of the emotional distress that it caused him with expressing that nobody should have had to look at their mother in her last days and the suffering that she went through. He said that his mother was undeserving, the most undeserving person for this to have occurred to her and that it should never happen to anybody. He did also recognize that some things came from a more administrative level. There were employees at LCC who had expressed concern about their ability to care for dementia and Alzheimer's patients. So some of these things, Chris and Tony and the rest of Julie's loved ones didn't hear about until later. And just the more that they found out about the experience that Julie had had to go through, um, that she had not had pain medication 
when she was going through painful treatments, that just added on to what they were already feeling to understand that there were things that could have stopped first Julie from ever being put in that position if LCC had said that they could not accept her as a patient because they were not equipped to um, appropriately take care of patients with Alzheimer's or dementia. And then once that was done, why did no one, and you know they really couldn't go back and undo what was done, why then did BB not treat her with compassion at all times? We'll probably never know why she wasn't ordered pain medication for some of those treatments, but I really hope that first thought that came into my mind was not the reason. So if I really go on too much further, I will be getting into an extremely long episode, and that's why I'm splitting it up into, um, or the number of incidents that I'll be going through um, into at least two episodes. I'll know more whether it'll be three episodes once I get done recording um, the next cases. And it's once I'm done with the last two that I will you know, try to recap everything and look at things, hopefully, that could have been done to try to prevent this. And also what questions we can ask or look for, you know, when having to make these types of decisions. Now, before I go, um, just one thing that I found at the very end while looking for information on Julie. And I actually found this mentioned not on an article about her case, but the one about the gentleman from the other long-term care facility um, that passed away in the wheelchair with the belt of the wheelchair. And that was that as Julie had been a nurse for 20 years, she'd worked at two places. She may have worked at more than two, but I do know too that she did. And that was BB Medical Center and Lewis Convalescent Center. Dates were not given, so we don't know exactly how long before her admittance into the hospital and LCC that she had been a nurse at those facilities. Um, as she was already experiencing advanced Alzheimer's um, symptoms, then it was probably you know, not immediately prior to those admissions, but she may have still known people that worked there um, at either one of the locations. And if she did, that had to be hard on them too, seeing what she was going through, not only originally as a patient to see the person that they worked with, who was so full of life, now going through this disease but then, too, if she had been brought back to BB or if, you know, someone at the LCC knew her and saw what happened, that had to be very dis distressing for them as well. It just seemed almost surreal in a way that someone who had devoted her career to helping others, to being a nurse, and even one time being a nurse at the two different centers that contributed to her either her death or, in BB's case, not having as much comfort care as she could have. So thank you, everybody, for sticking in with this episode. Um, I just didn't want to make it too incredibly long, um, but there will be two more cases in the next episode, and then, like I said, kind of that summary. Also, while I'm usually pretty open 
you know, during my podcast, I share experiences. Um, and the chronic illness that I do have, it has been flaring up some more, much more than, you know, I would hope. Um, I mean, I would really hope that it never flared up at all or caused daily discomfort and pain. But unfortunately, I think at this point that's never going to happen. But, you know, really doing the podcast and I, like I've mentioned, I've had have a couple others. It really helps keep me going in a lot of ways. It makes me feel productive. And I'm hoping that not only am I learning things about, you know, different situations that have happened in you know, my home area, my home communities, but I hope that we can all you know, try to learn some things to give us more awareness about what those around us may be doing um, and how we can help avoid some of these situations. On another podcast I have called See the Invisible, Living with an Invisible or Rare Disease, um, just kind of coincidentally, I was speaking with someone um, about an illness that's very close to me. While it's not an illness that I have, it was actually one that my sister did, and she passed away from complications from that illness. And I'm speaking with a representative from the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research on the most recent episode that I'll be uploading probably within a day or two of uploading this. Um, I'll give a link or put a link to um, the podcast series in um, in the description. But I discuss a lot of things about accessibility in that podcast as well, and looking at you know the distance that the hospitals in this area cover. You know that's one of the issues of accessibility as well, and. You know, I've lived in other places, um, whether it was further north on the eastern shore of Delmarva or even in New York when I went to college. And, you know, there's there's not as many hospitals. It does fit with the the population numbers, but at the same time, it's it's really a long distance to travel. And I just found while I started this episode, I really was <laughs> I was almost um, mirroring thoughts and everything that I had with the See the Invisible podcast. So you know, some of the accessibility issues, they kind of were on both podcasts um, this week. So I will leave a link you know, in the description if anybody is interested in you know, learning more about you know, how to handle rare illnesses from a patient's perspective. Um, I've had other interviews with um, some doctors as well as you know other people who've experienced rare illnesses or chronic illnesses. And like I said, it it does give me kind of a purpose, um, a motive. It's a motivation for me to not only learn more for myself, but you know to hopefully kind of spread some of the information that I found, um, you know, during my journey with the illness. So I hope if anybody's interested, they do pop over to that podcast and take a listen. Um, that was the first podcast I started. So probably some of the first episodes are a little rough, um, even though I think I think at the very beginning, I would record an episode like seven times if I didn't think it was perfect. Um, so I've gotten a little more proficient with that. Um, but I hope everybody, you know, who who does go over and listen that you get a little something from that. All right. 
Well, I hope everybody has had a fantastic weekend or 4th of July, whenever you're listening. And I will talk to everybody soon. Thanks.